0: Welcome to The Lead, a podcast from New Lines magazine, where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. I'm Danny Postel, the magazine's politics editor.
1: And I'm Kwangu Liwewe, the Africa editor. It's been five weeks since intense fighting broke out between Sudan's army, led by Lieutenant General Abdel Fattah al burhan and the paramilitary Group known as the Rapid Support Forces, led by General Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, also known as Himiti. With no end in sight, the death toll continues to rise, and the number of those who are internally displaced has risen to more than 700,000.
0: In this episode of The Lead, we're gonna zoom out from the maelstrom of the immediate news cycle and look at the bigger picture, examining how the Darfur conflict has been reignited, the role of the resistance committees and civil society activists, and the prospects for Sudan's ongoing struggle for democracy. To do that, we're joined by two Sudanese social scientists, Khalid Mustafa Medani and Nisreen El-Amin. Khaled Mustafa Medani is Associate Professor of Political Science and Chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University in Montreal. His most recent book is Black Markets and Militants, Informal networks in the Middle East and Africa. He's currently writing a book titled, Revolutionary Sudan, The Challenges of Democracy After Autocracy.
1: Nisreen Elamin is the Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Toronto. Her work investigates the connections between land, race, belonging, and empire-making in Sudan and the broader Sahel region. She's currently writing a book entitled Stratified Enclosures, Land, Capital, and Empire Making in Central Sudan. Nishreen Khalid, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you very much for having us. It's a real honor to be with you. And of course, also with my colleague and friend, Professor Alamin.
3: Thank you so much for having us and for covering what's happening in Sudan.
1: Okay, brilliant. So Khalid, I'll start with you. It was in the western region of Darfur that both of these warring leaders, that is Burhan and Hamiti, built their careers almost two decades ago. We're now seeing that this latest conflict has unleashed violence. We're seeing disturbing reports about sexual assault, looting and robberies. In Darfur, unlike in the capital Khartoum, civilians are being attacked for their ethnicity. The Darfur Peace Agreement in 2020 formally brought the conflict to an end, but violence has now returned to the region. How does Darfur figure in the present crisis engulfing Sudan? Thank
2: you very much for the question. Uh, Darfur figures centrally in a couple of different ways. Uh, First of all, historically, it's extremely important. It was really Darfur and the long war that uh, killed upwards of uh, 200 Um, 1,000 Datphorians in that region and displaced over a million that is really not only the precursor to the current conflict, but it is also in Darfur where the previous authoritarian regime, led by Omar Bashir and his ruling National Congress Party, devised a particular kind of scorched earth uh, proxy war against the insurgents in Darfur. And in doing so, they really set the stage for the kind of warfare that now has, of course, engulfed the capital itself on April 15th. And more specifically, what Omar Bashir did at the time, and this occurs in other African contexts, was to create a paramilitary militia that I'm sure many of your listeners have heard of, and that was called the Janjaweed. He essentially, or initially, released the former leader of the Janjaweed in, in 2003 uh, and others uh, from uh, prison incarceration and mobilized them to, through financial incentives mostly, mobilized them to participate and execute this proxy war on the behalf of the central government. In the context of that kind of proxy war, two very important figures emerge, very much um, and probably around 2006 and seven. One of them is the present, of course, General Burhan, Abdel Fatih Burhan, who actually participated in much of the killings as on the behest of the central government. And uh, most notably, of course, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, known as Hemeti, who uh, became instrumental and emerged as the leader, first of the Janjaweed. And later, when the rapid support forces was formalized legally, or institutionally rather, in 2013 and later in 2017 by Umar Bashir, as he was concerned with two things. One of them, of course, was the continued insurgency in Darfur and other parts of the country. But increasingly, by that time, by 2017, the reason he nicked him Hemeti, Ahmini, my protector, is that he formalized that militia under the le- leadership of Hemeti in order to put down not only insurgents um, in Darfur, but also dissent within Khartoum as protests engulfed Khartoum in a cycle of protests beginning in 2010, all the way up to the revolution of 2018-2019. So that's why the background of DATFOR is so central. Number one, because it uh, bespeaks the horrors that are engulfing not only, of course, Sudan and darfur now, but other parts of, of the country. But also, unfortunately, the de- de- um, designing of a particular kind of military um, strategy that now, of course, is being utilised by Hemeti in his war uh, and conflict with
0: Khalid, I'd like to go back for a moment to the revolution of 2018-2019 and why the Sudanese people rose up against the Bashir dictatorship that had ruled for 30 years. It, It seems to have been largely forgotten that this situation started as a popular democratic uprising against an authoritarian regime. Can you talk a bit about why that history matters to understanding the present moment?
2: Well, I think it, well, it's of course crucially matters because this war is is really at the domestic level against uh, the revolution and against the Sudanese people's will. I mean, it's just as, as simple as that. It is a, really a result on both the part of hemeti and Burhan, um, and I, I can, we can talk about it, their own fear of uh, a popular democracy and a civilian democracy and the expansion of freedom for the Sudanese people. You know, this war is centrally about them trying to preserve the vast wealth that they uh, both um, generated through illicit, coercive, and violent means. And it's also, of course, about their own will to power. Um, and that, of course, course, is centrally undermined by the Sudanese revolution. The revolution itself, of course, caught the headlines as it should in late 2018, but it was many years in the making. By 2010, partly but not exclusively because of the examples of Tunisia and then Egypt, Sudanese begin to mobilize and protest uh, first against issues of economic austerity associated, for example, with neoliberal reforms or neoliberal-inspired reforms, um, as an important example in 2011, it was uh, young women at the University of Khartoum and other universities that begin to mobilize uh, against the um, lifting of subsidies and uh, increase in tuition at the university. Um, from there, the revolution comes in the wake of a cycle of protest and what I've always called the learning process, first among uh, two main youth organizations. And of course, just in the context of the revolution, the emergence of the resistance um, committees that uh, coordinated with the Sudanese Professional Association by early, uh, late 2018 and then early 2019, when the Declaration for Forces of Freedom of Change was signed, a coalition, both of the youth organizations, even the political parties, that really solidified the opposition to the Umar Bashir regime. The important elements to understand the revolution of 2018 and 2019 to the present day has to do with what Sudanese call the so-called, unfortunately, soft landing, the kind of fatal compromise that emerged after the the great revolution that overthrew Umar Bashir in early April of 2019. It was at that turning point that Burhan's strategy or the military strategy, rather the Intelligence and Security Committee that was appointed by Bashir that essentially heads the Sudanese Armed Forces and was appointed by the Islamist National Congress Party. It is this committee that that begins a process of what we call perhaps in political science uh, up. Grading authoritarianism, uh, trying to speak or to implement um, minimal political reforms in order to retain their political power. Uh, At that point, and the critical juncture was that uh, the forces of freedom of change, at least their leadership, including leaders in the Sudanese professional association, decided in Sudan, what we call, uh, to implement what we call in Arabic, called the soft landing. Uh, That is to compromise and um, agree by August of 2019, to this kind of fatal compromise between civilian leaders and the military establishment. The debate at the time was whether the revolution should continue to force a full civilian democracy. But for a variety of reasons, political and also humanitarian reasons, that for in terms of people I spoke to, that compromise that was overseen by the international community begins the, the kind of not only distancing between the civil society leaders and the population in Sudan generally and the youth movements. But also it begins this kind of fierce competition within the military establishment of the coercive apparatus. It is here that we begin to see the jockeying for political power and influence between Burhan and Hemeti. It's from there that we can understand by October of 2020, when there was this Juba agreement that brought in uh, the insurgent rebels into the political system at the behest of Burhan, at the time the head of the Military Transitional Council. It was here that Nasrin Al-Amin likes to always say where the, the balance was tipped towards increasingly the military rather than the civilian leadership, if you don't mind me quoting you, Misrim. It is here that uh, we begin to see the great uh, preponderance of power on the part of Burhan and the military. I would date that to the Juba agreement. It is that Juba agreement that gave the confidence and the kind of hubris of both Hemeti and Burhan that they perhaps could actually eclipse uh, any efforts at uh, transition to full civilian democracy. This then occurs formally in October October 2021, when both conspire and partner to upend the leadership of the civilian prime minister, Abdullah Hamdok, and um, basically waged a military coup. And here, and I don't want to belabor this too long, is uh, to bring us to the present and to really return to what I said at the very beginning. The will of the Sudanese people uh, to really the surprise, uh, not only of neighbors, but the entire world continued, everyday protests continued until these uh, generals were forced once again to try to join with the civilian leadership under the auspices of the international community to transition to a civilian government. And it is this framework agreement that fell apart uh, by April 15th uh, because of the contentious issues of not only, you know, uniting the paramilitary militias under the auspices of the Sudan National Army, but also important issues deferred. The dreams of Sudanese deferred, so to speak, the central dream of accountability and justice and the important, important central issue and problem of dismantling the deep state that had in th- for 30 years controlled large swaths of the economy, the domestic economy, and in that way undermined the economic prospects of the majority of the Sudanese population. Those three contentious issues come together, leading to the conflict between Burhan and Hemeti that ultimately made them realize that, you You know, in order to maintain their power, they would have to basically fight to the death to emerge as the singular military and political victor. And this is the situation we see right now.
1: And just picking up on what you've just said, Khalid, if we're looking at what's happening now with the negotiations and the ceasefire, what do you see the role of the civilian leaders as in this current conflict? Do they have a voice at this moment? The civilian leaders
2: do not have a voice. Uh, they have a voice in the back channels negotiations, whether it is in Jeddah or whether it's in Nairobi, where the African Union is meeting with civilian leaders, as an example. And foreign governments, the U.S. representatives, Canadian representatives have met with, for example, Abdullah Hamdok and other civilian you know, leaders. Um, they don't have any say. And I think it's one of the, the most fatal aspects of these negotiations. Negotiations, when they include third parties to resolve these kind of conflicts in Africa, Africa require and are determinant in terms of the very design of those negotiations. We know that from examples I always like to cite, for example, Liberia and Sierra Leone, that absent the inclusion of stakeholders, including civil and most importantly, civil society groups, what occurs, of course, is the emboldening of uh, these two leaders and also, you know, undermining any efforts, not only to a ceasefire, but most importantly, as we know from other cases, a durable peace settlement. One must always look forward to the future in these very difficult times and understand that the only successful resolutions to conflict, first of all, usually they occur in the context of a mutually hurting stalemate that is occurring now. And second, and most importantly, they require the inclusion of civil society groups, even if they are divided, of course, they usually are for a variety of reasons, in order to not only design a new dispensation towards a transition. But ultimately, and we know this through a series of negotiations in Sierra Leone, Liberia, and elsewhere, ultimately to actually implement a durable peace settlement that one would think, I mean, it's not only the majority of Sudanese who want that, but for many external actors, their interest would be, I would suspect, at least in rhetoric for a durable peace. And that is why the exclusion of uh, these civil society organizations is not only problematic for peace, it also fits in to the strategy of these two generals who uh, jump at the chance, as you can imagine, for interlocutors to actually pursue negotiations that actually exclude their most important rivals, uh, which of course are the Sudanese
1: people. Okay. Nasreen, let me just take you back to the protests that saw the ousting of Bashir. During those protests, we did see a new agent emerge, and that of course was the local resistance committees, which Khalid mentioned earlier on. Just give us a sense of what role they played then and how significant they are in this current conflict.
3: I mean, I think we can trace the kind of emergence of neighborhood resistance committees really all the way back to the 90s, although they really emerged kind of full force during the protests that Khalid described in in the 2010s. And and part of the reason I mentioned the 90s is because this is when we saw the kind of adoption of neoliberal austerity measures in both urban and rural areas and the kind of clampdown on civil society by the al-Bashir regime, specifically kind of trying to co- both destroy local unions, for example, and any kind of civilian civil, civil society actors that formed a threat to the regime. And so you saw local kind of governing councils being taken over by the NCP and the Islamists in a way that forced resistance to kind of go underground. In the 2010s, the resistance committees emerged to really yeah, organize protests against the Bashir regime, but also on a, on a kind of more local level to mobilize around grievances, around basically government services, right? And and, and public service pr- provisions like water, electricity, et cetera. And so what we saw in 2018, 2019, we saw them emerge kind of as the backbone of the revolution, you know, organizing protests, but also protecting communities against counter-revolutionary violence by the state. And also in this transitional period, you then saw them take on a, a kind of A larger role in mobilizing the community to, for example, fix schools and to to, to essentially take on the role that the state should be taking, given that during this transitional period, the national budgets that were adopted in 2020 and 21, for example, reflected an increase in funding for Sudan's already bloated security sector and military and a decrease in social spending on health and education. Um, And so they played a a big role there in sort of filling some of those gaps. You know, they now are similarly again, I mean, there's a humanitarian catastrophe unfolding in Khartoum and in different cities across Darfur, Al-Jineen, Al-Fashir, Niala, also Lubayyid in in North Kordofan, where they are filling a vacuum that was left behind by the international aid community. Uh, distributing food and water, medicines, uh, driving ambulances, supporting Sudanese doctors um, in converting spaces into emergency rooms and, in, 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 you know, uh, bringing people to hospitals, the few hospitals, the 16% uh, of hospitals that are still operating, for example, in Khartoum. So, we've really seen them step in to essentially play the role that the state should be playing as these two war criminals are essentially battling it out for political and economic control of the country. They also, I should mention, published a revolutionary charter. About 55 resistance committees signed this charter last year, and it really laid out a kind of blueprint for what popular democracy in Sudan could look like. And it started from the bottom up, right? So a kind of process that would essentially empower people to elect from the very local level upwards to ultimately, right, elect the the the, the kind of heads of government, if you will. And I, I mentioned this as key because it, it attempts to really undo the immense damage to civil society and to any form of popular democracy that the al-Bashir regime did over the thirty years that it was in power, and I also want to mention, though, that uh, you know there are about anywhere between five and eight thousand resistance committees across the country, including in rural areas. But there are also many other forms of kind of organized resistance. I work in rural areas where we've seen farmers unions and agricultural workers associations emerge. During this transition period, we saw some of the longest worker strikes in Sudan's factories, for example. We also saw protests against the use of toxins and gold mining in in South Kordofan, And some of these were organized by resistance committees and others by some of these unions that I mentioned. And so I also don't want us to lose sight of the fact that there are other kind of formations that are connected to the resistance committees in uh, rural areas that as much as the resistance committees have been sidelined and completely cut out of any space at the negotiation table and they of course refused to negotiate their slogan was no negotiation no legitimacy no partnership with uh, the military coup regime during uh, this kind of protracted process of negotiation that followed the coup in october of 2021 um but there also were you know moments where they said listen we'll come to the negotiation table but the process needs to be a lot more transparent you need to you know when unitams attempted to uh kind of engage them and they said make it make it public right uh you know stream it live over facebook so that people in sudan can can uh, can see what the, what is happening Right? We don't want any more closed door negotiations, and they were rejected. So in the sidelining, I also want to emphasize that there are rural components here um, that really led into that, that sort of led to the revolution of December of 2018 that also continue to be sidelined. You've mentioned that the resistant
1: committees are helping with the hospitals and other humanitarian ways. But my question is, where's the funding coming from? We've got reports about cash shortages, especially in the capital, Khartoum.
3: I mean, the the funding is mostly coming from, I mean, some is from the diaspora, but for the most part, it's really these, these committees are distributing their own resources, right, through neighborhoods. I mean, I was in Sudan in April and I, I saw this happening, right, where people who had a little bit more resources were supporting them in distributing, you know, buying food, but also distributing them. People are helping each other out to get, you know, fuel. The prices of fuel have really gone up, so it's making it very difficult to do the work that they're doing. But yeah, the resources are coming from within and from the diaspora. And I should also mention it's at great risk to themselves, right? I mean, people, resistance committee members who are doing this critical life-saving work are being arrested, being shot at.
2: Can I, if I can add to that as well? I mean, you know, the resistance committees really begin as voluntary associations and the culture of volunteerism is there that really underpins all of that work. I spent some time with them as well in what we call Old Umdurman, the neighborhoods of Abbasia al and um, Wad Nubawi. But what is happening also now, if you don't mind me emphasizing, is a direct attack against them. The looting that we see, the unbelievable, inhumane looting is oftentimes seen as irrational or just a result of greed in quotation, but I'd like to emphasize that there is a strategic element to it. When you see factories of wheat, when you see the the markets in Umdurman, where you know where my family has their shops in old Umdurman, where you know the the Arab, what we call a Souq al Arabi, the more modern Arabic market, you'll see a strategic you know kind of attack that is taken, of course, from the strategies we spoke about in Darfur in earlier years. Here, you're basically pauperizing the population. Resistance committees and Sudanese in general in Khartoum who rely on generosity and these social networks and giving things and supplies and commodities and services for free as a result of voluntarism are now under attack. attack. And my argument here is that I believe this looting is not irrational. It is not just sporadic. It is, you know, on one level, of course, about strategy and taking over particular kind of homes and, and locations in the capital, but it's also about undermining the very fabric of Sudanese civil society. And it also is really undermining um, what um, is so important and part and parcel of the young um, uh, youth mobilization, and most importantly, the so- important social networks, informal networks that are so important both for survival but also for mobilization. And that is really important. I did want to also just add to Nasrin's, you know, a discussion about uh, unionization in the 1990s. By the early 1990s nineteen ninety two, to be specific, the draconian laws associated associated with, you know, barring unions and independent unions really have long-term consequences throughout the country. One of them was the emergence of informal associations, the Sudanese professional associations. And as much as in recent years, they've been much maligned, I just wanted to point out a couple of things. One of them, the Sudanese professional association was very much a service-oriented, of course, uh, association, rather than a traditional trade union. And another thing that members of uh, unions in Sudan like to always emphasize who understand the union work, and that is that the Sudanese Professional Association, because of its clandestine nature for so many years in Sudan, was not able to democratize internally. Uh, this lack of democratization and even elections under the authoritarian Islamist regime um, proved to be uh, problematic in the sense that they split uh, following the revolution and they lost legitimacy among rank and file because they did not have the luxury of a learning process under a more open system in order, number one, to have much more democratic uh, elections in terms of the professional associations and also to recruit and train young members in the work of unions and also in the work of larger national politics. And I'd like to uh, really just emphasize that because I think it explains rather than describes the Sudanese Professional Association's role after the revolution, if you you don't mind me saying that.
0: Not at all. Khalid, Nisreen mentioned the coup of October 2021 in which the Sudanese military, led by Burhan, seized control of the state. And I, I was struck by something that you wrote after that coup, but before the current war between Burhan and Hemeti's forces broke out. You wrote the question of whether Sudan will witness the consolidation of yet another authoritarian regime or re embark on a democratic transition, however fragile, will be determined by the evolving balance of power and conflicts between the security establishment and forces in civil society, and you know, reading those words, it, 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 I just couldn't help but be struck by their prescience, their prescience. Given the developments of the last few weeks, so my question to you is, how might things have gone differently during this transition period? You pointed out in that same essay that the post-Bashir transition involved a hybrid regime forged out of a tenuous alliance between military and civilian leaders, the soft landing that you've mentioned earlier in this discussion. But how could, or perhaps how should things have gone otherwise?
2: Well, the, you know, One way, of course, would would have been to uh, have a persistent um, mobilization and not to acquiesce on the part of the Sunni political parties and leadership in particular, not to acquiesce to the soft landing. There was a critical juncture in April in the discussions um, between the civilian leaders and the military. And unfortunately, for a variety of reasons, and civilian leaders make a variety of, let's say, rationalizations, including that they wanted the violence to stop and, you know, you needed a military in order to actually secure transition to democracy. That was echoed, of course, by external actors. It continues to be echoed by American policymakers involved at the time. That uh, one option for, uh, and I want to g- definitely give the perspective of the youth and um, uh, the, not only the resistance committees, but all of those social forces that wanted much more, you know, an insistence on a full civilian democracy in the transition, absent coalition and partnership with the military. Absent that, of course, pragmatism ruled the day. And the transition itself was complicated, I believe, by the, of course, instrumentalization of the civilian leaders who were not only, you know, concerned about the military, you know, in edging them out, but also crucially, of course, and I'm going to be very frank, concerned about their loss of power in the transition, given the fact that over the years they had lost legitimacy and they see the rise of a a new youth and generation that is, you know. like other Arab countries that I study, for example, these mobilizations are not only a result of economic crisis, but also they're a result of elite fragmentation and how young people are disillusioned with political leaders, civilian political leaders. That was acknowledged and well-known by the civilian leadership and the political parties, and they wanted to basically outbid on on one level, not only the military in partnership, but also, most importantly, um, the forces of, of democratization and the forces of the revolution. That is something that is, is clear, um, but there's also an issue of transitions in general that does not um, excuse uh, and make inevitable what has occurred. Uh, because transitions in Africa have, um, you know, um, gone through hybrid regimes and that requires uh, a real mobilization on the part of the civilian leadership once they took on pa- overpower Hamdok and others to actually use their constituency and the revolutions in order to push through certain policies, including excluding the spoilers, the insurgent organizations that were brought in in the Juba Agreement. Uh, they acquiesced to that even though those two, Jabril and Manawi in Darfur, do not have the constituency they purport to have. And another aspect, of course, and we can't forget, and here I'm always uh, focused on domestic politics, but the external actors who in their so-called pragmatism did not understand that transitions to democracy requires the full and heavy support of civilian With legitimacy in civil society. Instead, they wanted reliable partners. And they, as uh, one of our Sudanese colleagues likes to say, thought that they can overnight transform leaders who had enacted all of this violence and authoritarianism into Democrats overnight. So the combination of the weakness of the civil society leadership and, of course, the kind of support of of external actors for a transition that was, you know, willing to exclude strong civil society forces, we know is a recipe doomed to failure. Once again, if we see transitions in Africa, the majority of African countries are actually ruled by democratic constitutions, even though many of them are hybrid regimes, a combination of civilian and military Forces without the civil society participation in the transition period—that is, you know, a clear uh, recipe for disaster—and as Nisreen mentioned, there were many attempts. This notion that uh, civil society and even the youth and resistance committees were so closed that they did not care about the mechanics of transition is not the case. They set out a clear uh, outline. They said, uh, once they unified the political declaration, that they were open to discussion. They were open to even some compromise. Uh, There were uh, certain elements that were not up to debate, but the processes and even the institutions. And finally, and here I return to the initial part of your question when I made that argument in the chapter, and that is the fatal mistake and I say this even to American policymakers, has been this uh, lack of understanding and appreciation of the processes associated with genuine security sector reform. At the very time that there was a great opportunity, because the military was under uh, pressure from within and without, to enact a process of security sector reform that was is, has been successful in other countries, that was fatally deferred. All the way up to the framework agreement, and it was given perhaps, you know, less than a year to be worked out prior to the signing, and that's why it was delayed, is a mistake of unbelievable naivete, and that chapter is very straightforward in the sense that I had mentioned at the time that without dealing with security sector reform, it would eclipse any chance of autonomy for civil society in ways that would lead to a democratic transition. It's not rocket science, and it's a fatal mistake on the part of civilian leaders who deferred security sector reform and external actors who abated that deferral.
1: So Chief Volker Perters of the United Nations Integrated Transition Assistant Mission in Sudan, Unitams rejected criticism that the international community legitimized the two generals and that they missed the warning signs of this
3: conflict. What are your thoughts on this? I mean, I think history speaks for itself, right? If we look at the protracted process of negotiations that really started in June of 2019, all the way until the fighting that that began on April 15th, we saw that the international community was engaging with these two generals as khalid mentioned framing them as potential reformists when time and time again they proved that they could not be trusted that they had no interest in uh, any transition to civilian rule we saw the dune uh, 2019 massacre and then we had uh, the coup of october 2021 and many other instances where they proved that you know that they They were really merely interested in gaining more political power rather than in relinquishing it to civilian actors. And even in terms of the negotiation process that happened, of course, this is after the coup, you saw them handpick civilian elites that weren't really representing the streets, if you will, and you saw them undermine security sector reform, right? There were uh, civilians who had been talking about security sector reform for a very long time, who had outlined what that should look like, that were ignored. Um, you know, you had attempts to bring those who committed the massacre to justice that that were also not taken seriously. So, I mean, I think the international community is now in hindsight trying to say they they made a lot of mistakes. These are fatal mistakes that that to me directly led to the fighting, you know, the, this kind of hijacking of the Sudanese state that we're currently experiencing and this violence that is impacting that has now killed over 800 people. Um, and displaced uh, over a million people. And the Jeddah process is is a kind of a, a continuation of that. You know, it's in some ways, to me, the, the problem with it is that it's signaling to the world that there are peace talks when peace has not actually even been on the table in Jeddah. right? It's been mostly just an agreement uh, signed to allow for humanitarian aid to enter. But as we're seeing, the ceasefire has not even held. So again, we're seeing uh, the voices of civilians and the warnings of civilians continue to be ignored. They're not given a seat at the table, at least not in Jeddah, even though Khalid mentioned there is a process in Nairobi. But I have yet to see a really serious effort. If, if they are acknowledging that they made mistakes, right, then why isn't there a concerted effort to re- to address those mistakes and to not repeat them? And why hasn't there been more of an effort to put uh, civilian actors at the table and to hold um, these war criminals accountable. And I also want to mention that the Juba peace agreement, I mean, part of its fatal flaw was that it allowed for uh, armed rebel groups to really enter the political structure, uh, you know, and, and sort of attempt to gain more political control and support the coup regime rather than to kind of uh, integrate them into a process that would lead the, the power to be tilted in favor of civilians. And so my view is we need the international community's support in getting to a cessation of violence because of the role of external actors so far. Uh, But after that, after the fighting ends, I would prefer to see less international engagement and more, you know, perhaps a role played by the regional actors, but that is very much led by the civilian groups, the resistance committees and the other uh, civil society actors that have been warning us. Against this for a very long time, that have been telling us that we need a full transition to to civilian rule and a comprehensive kind of security sector reform that would allow a civilian oversight of the army oh, yeah. and also of their economic interests. I mean, one of the things we haven't mentioned yet is that the military elites. Uh, control over 200 companies uh, in Sudan in uh, various sectors, including wheat production, sesame, gold mining, livestock, etc. And that part of what led to the coup was an effort to have more civilian oversight over those economic interests. And and of course, uh, again, they proved there that they didn't want that. And that's, uh, to me, just proof that we shouldn't keep legitimizing these war criminals and and trust that they're going to move us any closer to to civilian rule or democratic elections.
1: So Khalid, Nisrin has given us an overview of the domestic and international interests in the country. US President Joe Biden signed an executive order authorizing the government to sanction Sudanese individuals and entities involved in this conflict. Now, just how important is it to have buy-in from Gulf states and regional actors for sanctions to actually work?
2: Oh, yes, it's uh, very, very important. The history of sanctions, of course, and the United States policy is a checkered one. Sanctions, general sanctions, you know, trade sanctions are uniformly ineffective. The innovation with respect to what the Americans call um, selective or smart sanctions begins, of course, after the failures of the sanctions in Iraq, also Haiti and And the former Yugoslavia. So by the end of of the war in Iraq, there was this notion that was agreed upon by both policymakers in DC, but also many academics and, and others that selective sanctions would, of course, minimize the humanitarian issue in terms of the collateral damage to for lack of better terms, to the population. So the issue of uh, targeted sanctions, first of all, we have to focus on what we mean by them. I think it's really important to understand that It is not a question of, you know, uh, if uh, targeted sanctions uh, work, but rather under what conditions. So we know from work on selective sanctions that they can only, by which I mean freezing of assets, of accounts, uh, travel bans, those uh, elements, institutions that are linked to, let's say, the military regime, Burhan or Hemeti. I think that we have to understand that those um, can only work in the context of of a real cohesive, uh, unified front. Now, the interesting thing about targeted sanctions is that they're not always able to change the calculations of people like Hemeti and Burhan. But what they do, and I think it's important, what they do is that they signal to other actors that the norm or the opposition against these two generals is now part and parcel of the kind of the international community's will. And in that sense, I think that um, there's a chance that for Saudi Arabia and the Arab Emirates, that targeted sanctions... Um, by the United States would have a particular kind of uh, effect that I think would would be really important. There are a number of uh, aspects in terms of their effectiveness. One of them is that if the relationship between himeti and let's say the United Arab Emirates as strong as it is without the participation of the United Arab Emirates in these targeted sanctions, um, then of course there would be a problem. In the past, the sanctions in Sudan failed for a number of reasons in general because um, generalized sanctions don't, don't work, but also there were of course, you know, exceptions made for commodities such as as gum Arabic, for example, that Americans allowed to be exported. And, of course, the exchange of intelligence between the head security chief at the time also opened up loopholes of unbelievable variety. Uh, but in, And, of course, um, they uh, end in that context to embolden and authoritarian regimes like Bashir. Targeted sanctions, I think, do have the potential if there is a cohesive agreement, not only in terms of changing the calculation by hurting the financial assets of these individuals, but also by signaling a threat. And from the work on targeted sanctions, that seems to be a consensus that the threat, if taken seriously, not only domestically by other countries, but in conclusion, I think it's important to understand that targeted sanctions are, have to be understood case by case. In the case of some African countries, in let's say Somalia, Liberia, and others, targeted sanctions that included commodity sanctions worked in terms of let's say if they're timber or gold, those kind of elements. So I hope that's not too complex, but yes, it's very important to have a cohesive understanding of sanctions. And it's also very important not to just you know discuss sanctions in terms of are they failures are they successes but rather under what conditions in this particular country during this particular time would they be effective i happen to think that the 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 situation in sudan is quite unique in the sense that there is no popular constituency for these two generals oftentimes sanctions can actually lead to support for leaders, even authoritarian leaders, because of the isolation, as in the case of Iran, for example, in some instances. But in this case, I think that we see the signaling already occurring. Interestingly enough, Burhan, as you know, recently says that he wants to or has decided to close the accounts and sanction Hemeti. That, I think, is, and he's done this because of his own perceived vulnerability, that they would be sanctions against him, and particularly the assets. Of the National Congress Party, of which he is part of, that deep state that we're talking about, and so it's a preemptive strike on his part. It signals perhaps uh, that uh, they're very vulnerable to sanctions. After all, the smuggling of gold in the initial years was part and parcel, and was conducted in partnership between Burhan and Hemeti. So uh, it's you know they have shared bank accounts at this point in many instances. So I think that that is important. I think that we should really look at the. Context of Sudan and what kind of sanctions would be effective and, and the fact that signaling the United States signaling to their allies, the United Arab Emirates and Saudi Arabia and others, that this is part of an international, let's say, consensus is extremely Important And finally, and the calculations of United Arab Emirates here are key in the sense of, to put it very bluntly, to what extent do they feel that Hemeti would continue to be a reliable geopolitical, strategic and economic partner in the context of Russian influence from the perspective of the United States? And is there a shift with respect to their relationship to their former client? And what can the United States do about that? And so that, I think, is really important to consider.
3: Well, so I want to say a couple of things. One of the things that we as a diaspora are asking for is for international interventions that are damaging to stop, right? So we see, for example, we have reports of the RSF getting fuel and support through General Haftar in Libya, who in turn is supported by external actors, and the Sudanese armed forces getting support through Egypt, also again being supported by external actors. And you have some, like Russia, you have the the Wagner group, reportedly supporting the RSF and sort of links with the UAE around Hamiti's gold trade. But you also have the Kremlin, on the other hand, also supporting the Sudanese armed forces. So Saudi Arabia is in a kind of similar position where they're, they're, they've been supporting both sides and sort of waiting to see who might get the upper hand. And I think this is an important thing to remember that the RSF itself, in some ways, was created not only by the Bashir regime, you know, legitimized in 2013 and 2017, as Khalid mentioned, but also through the European Union, through something called the Khartoum process. There was a, you know, this was a kind of gathering of, of states to essentially allow the European Union to externalize and to sort of outsource its migration control. Uh, to stem flows of African migrants entering Europe by militarizing that border between Sudan, Egypt and Libya, and essentially giving uh, the Bashir regime, I think, about $250 million that were then funneled into the RSF to act as migration control. The The RSF and the SAF sent forces to fight in the war in Yemen on the Saudi coalition's behalf and so we see here their own transnational connections right that continue in some ways to prop them up as these kind of transnational players and in some ways they're they're more accountable because they've hijacked the state right they're more accountable to those external actors as a result than they perhaps are to, to their own people and that's precisely makes this such a dangerous uh, moment for us and so i i just wanted to kind of mention these external actors and and say that You know, as again, again, to to go back to my point, I think, and we see this also in a a recent call that was put out by uh, the civilian forces on April 27th, that really, there are already so many damaging forms of international intervention, including the closing of borders, for example, we didn't even get a chance to really talk about what's happening at the Egyptian border, where people are stuck essentially trying to enter the country, Um, but also these these external actors that are supporting fighting and allowing it in some ways to become more protracted that need to stop. And so, again, we're not asking the international community to save us here, but to really stop those damaging forms of international intervention and to then get out of the way when it comes after the cessation of violence uh, in terms of allowing the popular democratic forces to take center stage, not only at the negotiation table, but also in terms of their own vision and analysis for the way forward. And here I want to really point out that the US role and and UNITAM's role has been to sort of tokenize and fetishize the resistance committees. They cannot deny their existence, right? But what they've done, and I've talked to US officials who have visited Sudan during this transition period, is they've, they've met with the resistance committees, they've talked to them, but as a way of kind of checking off a box of saying, you know, we engage with civil society when that is not a form of, of, of serious engagement, right? They're, they're, they're not, they haven't really been taken seriously as political actors. If anything, they've been told that they're being naive, unrealistic, that they're not politically sophisticated enough. We were really seeing a popular democratic force that could potentially usher in a type of democracy that we have not really seen in the region that could be revolutionary in many ways. And we need to step out of the way and allow that to happen. We've basically been standing in their way as an international community. Khalid Nisreen, thank you very much for your
1: insights. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much for having us.
1: This has been The Lead, a podcast by New Lines Magazine. You can find Nisreen on Twitter at MinLela77 and Khalid at KhalidBudani4. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Kwanguliwewe, and Danny Postel. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website,
3: newlinesmag.com.